Luke chapter 9, we're taking these two passages in tandem, talking about present suffering and future glory. Uh, let me start off with a story that I read years ago. Uh, 1981 Pepsi Challenge, 10K, Omaha, Nebraska. And there's about 1,200 people, men and women, standing there at the start line. And among them is uh, a runner, a competitor named Bill Broadhurst. Bill Broadhurst, however, is not just any competitor. Ten years before this race, back in 1971, he had a brain aneurysm that left him paralyzed on his left side. However, this July morning, Bill is going to run the entire 6.2 miles. The gun sounds, the crowd surges forward, and Bill Broadhurst raises his leg, sticks it forward, pivots on the other foot, throws his next foot forward, pivots again, and what you and I would consider at a pace maybe even slower than a walk, Broadhurst is going to exert exert all his energy for the entire 6.2 miles through this race. Sweat rolls down his face, pain strikes the ankle, but he keeps moving forward. Just under three hours now, Broadhurst is coming at least close to the finish line. The first runners finished in about 30 minutes. By now, all the police tape has been taken up and the cones and people have kind of scattered away and there's only a small crowd waiting there at the end. But Broadhurst is determined he's going to finish this race. As he crosses the finish line, Bill Rogers, the great runner that I think at some point held the record for the Boston Marathon, born in Hartford, by the way, right here in Connecticut, raised in Newington, who saw Broadhurst crossing the finish line and realized something special here was taking place. He was the winner of this race, as he was of most. And as Bill Broadhurst crossed that line, Rogers goes over and takes that medal off and puts it over on top of Bill Broadhurst just as he crosses. An absolutely amazing feat for someone in Broadhurst's condition. It was a grueling race for Bill Broadhurst, but he ran with patience and he crossed the line to a certain glory. And that's what Luke 9 is about. Suffering and glory. About the challenges that you and I are going to have running this race. The challenges we have as Christians being disciples and followers of Christ. I mean, let's be honest, it's hard enough just to live in a fallen world. You have to deal with all the problems that the world is going to throw at you, whether or not you're a Christian. And then on top of that, there are certain challenges that come with following Jesus. There is a grueling race that is set before us, and yet there is the hope of glory when we cross that finish line. And that's what Luke is communicating to us. What I want us to see in this passage, I think the most important thing that we can say is this. What Luke is saying is the same thing you're going to find in all the apostolic preaching, and it's this. You have to understand the story of the church in light of the story of the gospel. In other words, the story of the gospel is this. Jesus died on a cross, then he was raised from the dead. The story of the church is the same contour, right? It's, it's we as disciples, we suffer, we have cross in this life, and we have crown and glory in the next. And notice what Luke does. He starts off by talking about the suffering of Jesus, verse 21. For uh, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected the elders, the chief pizza scribes, killed on the third day, raised up. You know, it, the gospel story. And then, he, and then he tells the church, the disciples, you are going to follow that same pattern. So the story of Jesus, the contours of Jesus' life, the suffering in this life and the glory of the resurrection is the same pattern that we as his people are going to have. There's going to be some suffering in this life, but there's glory in the life to come. Luke wants us to see this. 
I could give you a passage all day. I bet you could give me passages all day on this idea. Here's one of them. Romans chapter 8. What does it say? If children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Joint heirs with Christ. Provided we what? Suffer with him that we might be glorified with him. You see it? The story of Jesus is suffering, then glorification. The story of the church. Suffering, then glorification. And what Paul is saying is this, you can't even begin to understand your own suffering as a Christian until you come to grips with the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only then do we really understand what's happening to us in this life and what's going to happen to us in the life to come. First Peter says this, he says, we rejoice in the sufferings of Christ that we may also rejoice when glory is revealed. Now, here's what I've discovered, and here's what I think the apostles are saying. When they, when they take the suffering of Jesus and they zip it together with the suffering of the church, they're kind of saying something like this. Picture, for example, uh, you're in a train, and the train is kind of weaving its way through the mountains. When you're in the train, it almost feels like the train is just going randomly through the mountains because you can't see the track from the inside. You can't see the front. You can't see the back. It just feels like the train is kind of, I don't know, going wherever it wants to go. And there's no control at all. But then if you take a 5,000-foot view, what do you see? You see the train is simply following the contours of the track that's laid down. This has been predetermined in advance. It's going to go this way, it's going to go that way, and the train follows the contours of the track all the way through the mountains. The same is true in a Christian life. Sometimes things happen to us. And we're on the inside of the car, and we don't really understand why. We feel like life is just random, just spinning out of control. The boss just did that because he's a nasty person, you know? Or maybe my neighbor keeps shooting leaves on my yard. You know, something, it's just random. It just happens. More serious, of course, would be things like persecution for the sake of the gospel. But what Luke and Peter and Paul are doing, they're giving us the 5,000-foot view where they're showing us that what's happening in our lives is following the tracks of the gospel. The train of your life is not just randomly moving through this world, but it follows certain contours. It follows the contours of the gospel. Jesus laid that down in the cross and then the resurrection, and now you and I, we can understand this now, that when bad things happen to us in this life, it's not random. It's following the track of the gospel. It's cross now, and we anticipate glory to come. And that's what Luke is telling us in this passage. Now, I thought I'd start off with just implications. What is, like, big picture, before we talk about suffering and glory, why is it so important to understand the pattern of cross now and glory to come? Let me give you maybe four or five thoughts. First one is this. It reminds us that suffering is not an indication that someone has stepped out of the will of God. And this is really important because that's the assumption a lot of us make. When life starts to fall apart for us or maybe for someone else, maybe our minds start saying what the disciples said. Was this man born blind because he sinned or his parents sinned? In other words, we feel like someone stepped out of the will of God and therefore they're being punished in this life because of that. That doesn't mean there's not consequences for bad decisions, but what that does mean is that when we see someone in suffering, we need to guard our hearts and our minds from going to that place that says somebody stepped outside of the will of God. That'd be a mistake. The friends of Job do this. When the friends of Job come to comfort him, quote-unquote, what do they say? 
Well, Eliphaz, one of the friends, looks at Job. He's trying to be sincere too. He says, Job, who is innocent that's ever perished? Like innocent people don't have their lives fall apart. Oh, the boils on your skin, the loss of your loved ones, the economic ruin, that's because you've sinned against God. And if you would just repent and make this right with God, he would restore all these things back into your life. Who is innocent that ever perished, congregation? I got one name in mind. Jesus. The idea that suffering in this life is an indication that we've stepped outside of the will of God, that is a religious worldview. That is not a Christian worldview. That is why I don't ascribe to the concept of karma because it's outside of the scope of Christianity. Bad things can happen in this life. If the sinless, righteous Son of God suffered in this life, the contours of the track tell us it's just reasonable that we very well may experience the same as his people. Peter, if you ever want to read more on this and you read the book of 1 Peter, it's a major theme in 1 Peter. Here's the old King James. Uh, was it chapter 1? No, chapter 4. Think it not strange when the fiery trial comes your way. I like that language. Think it not strange. In other words, don't be surprised if you're living right for God and bad things come into your life. Later in the same chapter, by the way, he says, it is God's will that you suffer for his sake. In other words, let me just bring this down to where we live. Here's what a lot of us do. You move and take a new job, or you step out and you, you do something you think God wants you to do, and then all of a sudden, life kind of falls apart and you second-guess the decisions you made. You, you start saying things like, wow, maybe, I, maybe that was the wrong decision, right? Peter's saying, don't think that way. It is God, sometimes life falls apart and God's going to use those things in your life and in the world. Think it not strange. Don't second guess. It is God's will. And we entrust ourselves to the faithful creator. Number two, the gospel reminds us that God can make sense of suffering in this world. God has a plan in pain. See, when we're in the train car, we can't see this. But if we go to the 5,000 square, uh, foot, uh, 5,000 foot view like Luke is giving us and Peter and, and, and Paul, we can see that the contours of the track are actually going somewhere. The suffering of Jesus led to glory. There's a lot of wonderful stories in the Bible that remind us that, uh, that God can make sense of suffering. I, one of my favorites is in the Old Testament with, um, uh, with Joseph, right? Joseph is sold into slavery. He's falsely accused of a sex crime. It's like nothing worse than this. He's thrown into prison. And yet through that experience, through another set of experiences also, Joseph rises to power in Egypt and not only saves Israel from starvation, he saves the entire world from starvation. That is God taking something very bad and using it for something good for his glory. Or maybe Ruth in a foreign land. There she was, O Moabitess, where she loses everything, loses her husband, she loses everything, she has nothing. But somehow she sticks close to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she makes it back to, or she, she eventually ends up in, in the Holy Land, and that's where she meets Boaz. And they have a son, his name is Jesse, and he has a son, his name is King David. <laughs> that's an example of God taking something bad and bringing something good out of it. But all of those stories point to the archetype. The archetype is the story of the gospel. 
In the story of the gospel, a righteous, innocent man died on a cross. It's a horrible injustice, but that is what God used to bring about the salvation of the world and, of course, his church. And there, as the disciples looked at the cross, remember Luke 24? Literally, while they're watching Jesus die, they're losing their faith. How can he die? He's the Christ. We thought he was the Christ, one of them said, but then they crucified him. And if you and I were there, we'd tap him on the shoulder and say, that's sort of the plan. The Christ is, he, remember he said that like ten times. But when you're there as your disciple, it really shakes your faith. If God can make sense of the suffering of Jesus, he can make sense of the suffering in your life. The economic loss, the loneliness, God can make sense of the loneliness of Jesus. He can make sense of the loneliness in your life. Number three, it goes without saying, this is definitely going to push back against that so-called wealth and health gospel. John mentioned this last week. There are some that teach that, you know, God's great purpose for you in this life is to make you rich and live forever and just be happy and healthy all the time. Well, let me begin by saying, I don't doubt that God often does those things in our lives. I'm grateful for that. I love rejoicing when God gives prosperity. I pray for prosperity in all of your lives. But that's not the driving passion of God's heart in this, in this life right now. He wants to see us holy and Christ-like. But again, what's the pattern? The pattern is cross, then crown. The wealth and health gospel says, crown now. And they omit the cross. We see here Jesus saying, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. The idea that we're going to go through this life without any pain and suffering, that's us being very naive and not reading carefully the text of Scripture. Third thing is this, just implications on the pattern, watching the contour of the track. Four, if we misunderstand the story of the church or misunderstand the story of the gospel, it leads to an inevitable crisis of faith. It can only lead to a crisis of faith. Um, I'll be brief here, but um, I, 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 you know, you, if you're a Christian for any length of time, you don't have to be a pastor, but I'm sure you've had people come up to you when they go through a really hard time and they say things like, I tried Jesus and he didn't work for me. Or I tried God and it didn't happen. And when you really start pressing on what do they mean it didn't work, what, what they're saying is, I believe God was going to just give me every good thing in this life that I'm asking for. And I believe that when I follow God, only good things are going to happen. But again, we're not watching the contours of the track. There's going to be suffering in this life and there's going to be glory to come. We're looking for all crown in this life. If we believe there's all crown in this life and then we get cross, you know what happens? You lose your faith. Uh, I've been a pastor for, oh, I don't know, 23 years. This is just speaking from my heart. Very, very, very few times have I seen somebody walk away from the faith because of some supposed contradiction in the Bible. I almost never see that. You read it online, but it never happens in real life. I've seen people, very few people fall away because they say things like, well, I can't reconcile religion and science. It happens, but I don't, I don't see it that much. But I got a, a list of people where crisis and trials have come into their lives and it wasn't what they expected and then they fall away. We don't fall away because of some contradictions in Scripture. We fall away because suffering is an impetus for unbelief. It is extremely important as Christians that we watch the contours of the track. 
That's what Luke is pressing on us. He will be crucified and then rise on the third day. If you're a Christian, you're going to be crucified to some degree in this life, and you're going to rise and be like Christ in glory. Present suffering, future glory. And that's where Luke is going with this. So let's talk about these two. We'll move quickly. Let's talk about present suffering, and then we'll make a few comments about future glory as presented by Luke here in chapter 9. First of all, present suffering. Here's the verses we'll focus on. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, if you want to be a disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? Now, this is what's strange. If you read the Gospels, like... um, you know that passage where, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? You know that passage? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Some say you're Elijah or Moses. Or one of, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you know that comes right before this kind of statement in Matthew? So, so Jesus looks at Peter and says, blessed are you, Simon. You nailed it. I am the Christ. But you have to understand, of course, in the first century, to be the Christ means you're going to come and put all kinds of power into this world and defeat the Roman armies. But Jesus here does just the opposite. Peter is expecting, and all the disciples are expecting, a Messiah that's just going to exercise all the power in this world and push those Romans out. And yet Jesus says this. He goes the other way. He says, I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to die and if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. You know what this is? This is Alice through the looking glass. Do you know that story? Lewis Carroll did Alice in Wonderland. Alice through looking glass is another one of, of Carroll's stories. And it's the opposite of everything. And Alice through looking glass, if you want to go left, you have to go right. <laughs> and if you want to go right, you have to go left. Progress is made by going in the opposite direction. And everything in that world is counterintuitive. And it takes all kind of mental effort to think through the ordinary activities working this way. But if you can understand Alice through the looking glass, we can understand what Jesus is saying here in Luke 9. That I am going to bring about a glorious victory in this world. But it's not going to be by me exercising the power you think I should. It's going to be through dying on a cross and being raised from the dead. This is a looking class version. Alice through looking glass. In other words, the way up is the way down. How much more Alice through looking glass can you get than this? If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. (laughs) It's just the opposite of what you would expect. So what does it mean to have a degree of suffering in this life? And it's going to look different for everybody. We realize that. But in all cases, there needs to be a willingness to sacrifice Three things for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. Let me point the three out that Jesus mentions here. The first one is to sacrifice liberties for the sake of Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now this is a shock. What does the cross mean? You and I wear crosses around our necks and we see crosses maybe on a church. But this would be the equivalent of an electric chair being worn around your neck. This is a symbol of crucifixion, and it's a symbol of death. And as Jesus put that cross and carried it down the Via Della Rosa, he's now telling his disciples that if you want to follow me, take up the cross 
Don't, don't grab for all the power in this world. Don't exercise all your liberties. Let them be restricted for the sake of Christ. He says something very similar to Peter at the end of the book of John. He says, Peter, when you were a young man, you would dress yourself and go wherever you wanted. But when you get old, you're going to stretch out your hands and another is going to dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said that to predict what kind of death Peter would die. He also is going to die on a cross. By the way, he demanded that he be crucified upside down. Felt that he wasn't worthy to be crucified like Jesus. But when you think about that picture of the cross, the cross is restrictive. The cross is something that holds you down. And that's the idea here. For the sake of Christ, there are times we're called to sacrifice our liberties Deny ourselves, disassociate ourselves from our own interests for the sake of the gospel. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says things like, I, I can also have a wife, but for the sake of the gospel, for my ministry, I've decided not to. And I can also have compensation. I mean, Peter gets compensation, but for the sake of the gospel, I'm forfeiting that. That is sacrificing liberties for the sake of the gospel. Church history gives us some, some wonderful stories about men and women that have sacrificed their liberties for the sake of the gospel. And one of the lesser-known stories is Lao Fuk, who was a, a, a Chinese Christian. Lao Fuk became a Christian probably about 16, 17 years old, worked in a barber shop, and he liked to begin talking about Christ. And there in his 20s, Lao Fuk started to get a real burden for Chinese people outside of China around the world. Uh, what was happening is the Chinese were being brought into some kind of, it's almost slavery, an indentured servanthood. And they were in South America and Africa and different continents around the world. Terrible conditions. They would go into these mines and work and 12 hours and they'd come out. You can go a month without even seeing the sun. And a lot of them were roped into these contract, false contracts, uh, all kinds of derogatory names. It was a very hard life. And Lao became... Very burdened that these people come to know Christ and he bring the hope of glory to them. And he did the absolute unthinkable. He sold himself as an indentured servant for a five-year period. He was a fairly wealthy man when he did that. Didn't need the money. That was sacrificing his freedom for the sake of the gospel. Something he felt God was calling him to do. He eventually made his way all the way to South America, by the way, where the very, he's a Baptist, happened to be a, where the very first Baptist church was established. Sacrificing liberties for the sake of the gospel. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. It's not all about you. It's about Christ. That's what Luke is saying. The second one is we're also called at times to sacrifice our ambitions for the sake of Christ. This is one of my favorite lines in the Gospels. Whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall save it. Now, let me give you a, a thought about some of the words here. That word, there are three Greek words for life, and at least three in the Bible. You know all three of them. You just might not know you know all three of them. Here's the three. The first one is a Greek word, bios, where we get the English word biology, right? <laughs> And, and when that one's used in Greek, it's it just kind of what it sounds like. You know, the blood, the body, just kind of biology. It's a Greek word for life. The second one is a Greek word, zoe. Zoe is a word that talks about your physical life. 
You know, in John 3.16, it says, you know, believing in Jesus, you get eternal life. That's the word Zoe there, for example. It's just talking about life. The third one, you also know, it's suxe. It's where we get the English word psychology or soul. And that's the word that's used here. Now, when that word suxe is used or soul, Jesus says, whoever will lose that is going to find it. This is where I'm going with this. He's not talking about the Zoe, and he's not talking about the bios. He doesn't necessarily mean that if you're willing to give your life physically, you're going to find it. Because there's more than one way to give your life. Zuxe here is a reference to your ambition, to your interest. Take a, a mom that loves her children. Let's say a mom that's in great poverty, wants third world, wants to take care of the child lives in a very rough neighborhood, you know. And so that mother can give the life for her child one of two ways. If a car is running down the street and the mom pushes the child out of the way and the mother loses her life, she has lost her Zoe, you know. She's lost her physical life. But there's another way the mom can give her life for her child. What can she do? She can sacrifice her own ambitions and her own dreams and pour herself into that child. She wanted to be famous, but it's more important for her to raise this child. There are times she can make more money, but that's going to endanger her child, so she doesn't do that. That is a woman that's giving up her, her suksé, her dreams, her ambitions, her goals. That's the word Jesus gives us here. Whoever is willing to give up their ambitions for my sake will find something remarkably special. That's Alice through looking glass. Lose your life in order to find it. You ever teach a child how to swim? You know, you got them in the pool, and they're, you know, they're up to here, and they got their toe on the bottom like this. It's like the last thing they're going to let go, you know? And you, you're trying to knock the toe out <laughs> so they swim. And you finally say, if you don't lose your footing, you're not going to learn to swim. You have to be willing to lose a certain place of comfort. And you have to be willing to lose that toe on the bottom of the pool. Give it up. Let go of it. So that you can find something infinitely more special. The ability to swim. That kind of freedom. Jesus gives us something very similar here. I can only tell you this. As Christians, it's okay to let go of your ambitions. God doesn't always call us to do that. Sometimes he tells us to follow him. But it's okay if you have to let go. It's okay if you can't take your dream job. It's okay for the sake of the gospel if you have to give up some ambition in this life because whoever is willing to lose that is going to gain something far more special in the end. The last one is at times we're called to sacrifice our goods for the sake of Christ. What does it profit a man if he gains the world and and forfeits himself? Lose your soul is the old language. And the gospel brings us face to face with the reality of loss here. So three things, liberty, ambition, and goods. Three things that God calls us to forsake at times for the sake of the gospel. I want to move on, though, because I do want to talk about the hope of future glory. And we're going to do this quickly, but we can't just leave it at suffering. We have to complete it glory. So here's the transfiguration. Oh, by the way, verse 27. Take a look at this real quick in your Bible. After he says, take up your cross and follow, what does he say? I tell you truly, there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Wow, that's mystifying. What does that mean? 
You're not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Some people say that's a reference to the second coming. I, if, maybe I missed the second coming, but I don't think that's a reference to the second coming. I think more likely it's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. That idea of seeing the risen Christ. And the disciples did get a taste of the glory to come when they saw the resurrection. But I think most likely it's something even closer than that. What does it mean when he says, excuse me, when he says that we will not uh, taste death until we see the kingdom of God? You know what I think it is? I think it's the very passage we're studying, the transfiguration. And it happened just six days later. And the disciples saw that. Not all of them, but at least three of them. Peter, James, and John. He takes them for the transfiguration. And I think that's what it's a reference to. He takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. And there is Moses and Elijah. A lot of people wonder, why is Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration? The word here is metamorpho, which means Jesus is transformed into a glorified state. This is what he would kind of be like after the resurrection. There's Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about the cross and the resurrection. We don't know exactly why Moses and Elijah are the ones that God put here with Jesus. We do know that when the second coming or the the Messiah was going to come, many Jewish people believed it was associated with Moses and Elijah, so that's probably the case here. Peter makes this suggestion. He says, should we make three booths? One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Luke says he didn't really know what he was talking about. Peter here is making reference to what's called the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, where the Jewish people would practice this. Uh, if you're like 12 years old and you're on your own, you would build a booth, you know, and kind of stay in that for about a week. It was a symbol of worship and a symbol of the Exodus and things like that. There's not a lot of it in Scripture, but you can read about it in history. So Peter here is very well-intentioned. You're going to find something here for the second time in Peter's life, and it's this. God is actually going to interrupt Peter. God interrupts Peter in verse 34. Uh, Let us make uh, booze, verse 33, knowing not what he said. Listen to this. As he was saying this, a cloud came down and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And the voice came and said, this is my son and whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So Peter here has a good idea. And a lot of us have good ideas. And then God comes and interrupts our good ideas with his own idea. And that's what's happening in Peter's life. There's a proverb that says something like this. The the way unto man seems right, but in the end it is death. And, And that's what's happening in Peter's life. Peter is very sincere. Let's make a booth for Moses. Who wouldn't want to make a booth for Moses? It's Moses after all. And God comes down in a cloud and says, Peter, that's a terrible idea. I don't even know what you're talking about. This is my son and whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This is a whole sermon here that we can run through our minds about letting God interrupt our plans, even when we find them very sincere and very good. But we have to leave that space for God to trump our plans. All right, three thoughts on future glory. And again, I'm just going to put them up here for the sake of time. Because of the hope in Christ, that resurrection and the glory we have, Number one, we can follow Jesus joyfully. As a Christian, you will have no joy in this life if you don't taste the glory to come. We have to know that at the end of the road is great glory for God's people. 
We have to think about heaven. We have to think about transfiguration. We can't just focus on all the suffering in this life. That'll just spiral us to despair. Uh, when I, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about this. I made a coconut shrimp. This is a while ago, but I, a little bit fell on the plate. I love coconut shrimp. A little bit fell on the plate. And I, you ever, you ever do this? Just pick it up and you throw it in your mouth. And you're like, oh, that's so good. Now I want to eat all the shrimp, you know? That's a small sample of what's to come. That's what Luke is doing here to the disciples. You're going to have suffering. I can't give you the whole plate right now, but I want you to pick up that little piece and eat it. That's the transfiguration. We have to sample glory in order to understand that there's so much more to come. When you find yourself in a hard time, don't be afraid to open your Bible and read Revelation 20. (laughs) Revelation 21, that talks about the hope of heaven. Let us never be afraid to read Romans 8. The whole creation is groaning in travail, but someday the manifestation of the sons of God and the redemption of the world. Number two, because of this future glory, we can follow Jesus confidently, confidently. In other words, we can follow Christ with, with all we have. Uh, in this passage, do, do you know in our day people have objections to Christianity? You know, like I could list them all out. We do that all the time here. But the big one in the first century, the, the one, this might have been the biggest one, Christianity is too new. That was an objection in the first century. See, in, in our modern world, people value new things. Do you have the newest iPhone? You know, people say. In the ancient world, nothing new was cool. Only old stuff was cool, you know? And so... So Christianity was deemed too new to be authentic. And so what you find the biblical authors doing is trying to show Christianity is not the new kid on the block. Christianity is actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is exactly what God had planned. And that's what's happening in a transfiguration. Moses and Elijah appear, and it's showing the disciples that this plan with Jesus, this is nothing new. Look at Moses, look at Elijah. Jesus is the fulfillment of this Old Testament. And there's all kinds of echoes in this passage. Most people believe that the transfiguration is actually an echo from Moses giving the law at Mount Sinai. You got clouds. You got some of the same imagery, a high mountain, the presence of three witnesses, the glorious appearance, the overshadowing of the cloud, a voice comes from the cloud, fear of those who witness the glory. There's all kinds of parallels with Exodus. Again, what is Jesus here showing the disciples? This plan, this gospel is not the new kid on the block. This is ancient. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament, which God decreed before time. And this, of course, gives the disciples the courage to follow confidently. They don't have to follow thinking that this is anything except authenticity from God. Christianity is not new. The Jesus movement is not distinct from the Old Testament, but the fulfillment of it. The last one, I think is the most obvious, follow Jesus exclusively. And the passage goes on to say, verse 35, and a voice came out of a cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Now you can, you can highlight any of these words, but I think the one we're supposed to highlight is the one him, right? We, like listen, we highlight listen to our children, listen, you know, the word here is him. I want you to picture this, this is G- God interrupting Peter. Peter's got a great idea, and Moses and Elijah are there. 
And God comes down and says, this right here, not Moses, not Elijah, not even Peter. This is my chosen son. Listen to him. And this is talking about the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is greater than all the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than Peter. As his people, that's the place we want to give Christ in our lives and in the church. There are so many voices out there that we can listen to. And I would even say we can get some great ideas from. But when it comes down to it, this, Jesus, is the chosen one. All authority is given him. He is the one we follow exclusively. The one above all names. Present suffering, future glory. May God give you and I great strength as we push through challenges in this life. But we know there's a glory to come.